in terms of 21st century American foreign policy, shouldn't the use of the military be the last resort, not the first resort all the time? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. After so many millions of killings by the total reliance on military solutions to the world's challenges, is it at all realistic to think there may be better ways to conduct foreign policy other than thrusting hot lead into the flesh of other humans? As the old saying goes, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And boy, we sure have a military. And as as we've seen Often enough, more often than we'd like, strictly military approaches rarely, if ever, actually resolve foreign policy challenges. In the wake of World War II, a great many good minds considered what had just happened, the Holocaust and nuclear devastation, and were serious about envisioning and articulating a new non-military alternative. In fact, in 1948, the United Nations came up with a groundbreaking Universal Declaration of Human Rights, largely the work of Eleanor Roosevelt. It identified the root causes of so many wars and not illogically aimed at addressing the underlying causes of wars and finding ways to actually solve international problems and remove the motivations for organized violence. What could have been may still be what could be. What stands in the way? Why does our government insist on the same old, same old policy of expensive and deadly military solutions when they generally fail to achieve long-term peace and prosperity? As our guest today, historian and author Leon Fink writes in his new book, Undoing the Liberal World Order, quote, the Biden team has yet to articulate an alternative to the neoliberal conventions that ruled democratic policy circles from the late Carter years through the Obama era, end of quote. The dramatic hellfire missile assassination of al-Zawahiri in Kabul at the end of July is only the latest example of myopic militarism. Does anybody really think this long-sought elimination will make Americans any safer? That it will actually increase America's national security? Is there really no other way to address the causes of terrorist attacks? Maybe. Might it be time to end reliance on age-old neoliberal Cold War militarism? Is it possible now? As I say, our guest today is Leon Fink, Distinguished Professor of History Emeritus at the University of Illinois at Chicago and Senior Resident Scholar at Georgetown University's Kalmanovitz I may may not have said that right, Uh, Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor. He's editor of the journal Labor, Studies in Working Class History of the Americas, 
And as many books include, most recently, Labor Justice Across the Americas. Boy, wouldn't that be a good thing? And his new book, as I said, is Undoing the Liberal World Order. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Leon Fink. Great to be here, Bert. The, the book and the article on History News Network was written well before that targeted assassination in Afghanistan. Without that event, you wrote that, quote, the Biden administration risks becoming a Johnny OneNote of warmed-over Cold War security thinking. What led you to say that? Well, uh, I can't think of much other than uh, military uh, uh, events and or security issues and response to them, uh, to, to military threats. I can't think of any other initiative we've heard from Biden and really many other Democrats, uh, not just since his election, but but for years. Foreign policy more generally rarely figures, I think, in Democratic like uh, primary discussions or candidate uh, selections. Uh, there, I think there is some variety within the, the party when you dig down. But in fact, I think that the Democratic Party as the, the leading liberal, uh, <clears throat> such as it is, the leading liberal um, vehicle in our uh, political culture uh, has itself uh, effectively been taken over by kind of a military security complex uh, uh, for decades. Yes. And it finds it very difficult to think outside that box. Yeah, it really is. And and I I personally, I like a lot of what Biden is doing domestically. But in terms of foreign policy, it's the same old, same old that we just, it's like it has a life of its own. And we, we people know the term liberal fairly well, but what what is neoliberal when it comes to foreign policy? Well, uh, I don't think it's so different from neoliberal when it comes to domestic policy in, oh. in the sense that, uh, in the sense that um, I think if we go back to the end of World War uh, II, a liberal coming out of the New Deal, uh, New Deal liberalism as opposed to classical uh, free market liberalism, uh, meant a commitment to uh, certainly security on the one hand, but security of, of the people in terms of their social welfare uh, also, and uh, a commitment to democracy and the post-war view was the idea of spreading a world of democracy and prosperity. Uh, yeah. These are the same ideals of the, the New Deal domestically. Mm -hmm. But I, I would say that neoliberal, um, as the, um, the post-war framework that we often called, referred to, uh, to con connect to the Bretton Woods mm -hmm. economic institutions developed at the end of the war, as they began to uh, grow frail or, or to, to, co to come apart, mm. uh, the uh, policy uh, tended to turn, instead of uh, to governments or even international agreements, turn to the marketplace for solutions to the problems of economic growth and development. Neoliberal, in that sense, tended to mean deregulation of the economy domestically, uh, such as airline deregulation, mm. et cetera, but also internationally with um, as an earlier globalism that was framed by organizations like 
the World Bank, like the IMF, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it, but it also included uh, foreign aid and, and then the Marshall Plan and beyond. Uh, as those uh, tended to uh, diminish, they were taken over by purely market-based solutions to problems. And ultimately, we have what you know some have called a kind of hyper-globalization that took over by the time of the um, World Trade Organization in 1995 and uh, uh, and basically the, the rule or decision making by uh, global corporations mm. rather than rather than governments. Mm. So that's what I mean by international um, neo neoliberalism has tended to substitute for a liberal order that was framed in a more by a more mixed economy a more or, or at least a more mixed set of instruments so instead of as america's founders so clearly intended to have war making not in the hands of the president but in the hands of congress to make it more answerable to the people after world war 2 the market forces were left to take over, and those market forces uh, have kind of created foreign policy. And so instead of the people that are affected by foreign policy being involved in the decision-making, it's those who want to profit by increased international trade, selling their stuff around the world, buying stuff uh, that oftentimes they, the IMF and uh, uh, other organizations like that, uh, the military becomes part of the answer to uh, forcing, literally forcing uh, solutions and, and arrangements to, to be stuck in place. These arrangements that serve the global corporate interests and not necessarily what was intended after World War II. And you mentioned uh, kind of spreading the idea, the benefits of, of FDR's New Deal, which mm-hmm. was very beneficial uh, through such initiatives as the Marshall Plan and Bretton Woods. Uh, tell us, please, remind listeners what those were. Well, uh, the uh, Bretton Woods uh, and, and with its accompanying IMF and World Bank were, were attempts to, to stabilize an international order that had become undone, uh, particularly with the rise of fascism, um, by uh, autarkic uh, cartels uh, and a narrowing of of commerce between nations, um, ultra-hyper-protectionism, so that for a period of time, um, most of the agents of liberalism, and here I would include the labor movement internationally, as well as, uh, at least in the West, the labor movement, as well as um, uh, the Democratic Party, uh, saw a relatively open economic liberalism or open markets as a as a progressive uh, transformation of the world economy, a way to to build out prosperity, uh, just as the New Deal had expanded um, the the economy. Uh, and I would say that. The, a, a, an economic liberal marketplace, um, and this is, you know, we, we tend to forget this, but an economic liberal marketplace that was also defended, that also defended political freedoms at the same time 
you know, had some astounding successes, particularly the the rebuilding of germ post-war West Germany, uh, which included very progressive labor institutions like co-determination, mm. strong unions. Um, it included, but other examples internationally that sprouted on this post-war model. There's the state of Israel. Uh, if we look uh, away from its, for, for the moment, at least from its ethnic um you know, uh, it, 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 it's it's not only divide, but ultimately it's um, it's control over, over the, the neighboring Arab population and, and the Palestinians. If we look away from that for the moment, uh, the Israel took off as a thriving um, democratic and buoyant state with strong labor and welfare institutions. Um, Costa Rica is another example. India um, at you know, saw the first great assault on world poverty in India, mm. and ultimate, ultimately the um, the un, undoing of apartheid in, in, in South Africa. All those were representative, I think, of that the post-war order of individual rights, freedoms, and a, a largely a, a buoyant marketplace, but one that was also cushioned um, by other considerations. And I'm just, I think that what in the um, by the late 70s, um, with America's own economic crisis, um, the oil shock, and so mm-hmm. on, um, America itself turns to this deregulatory impulse of neoliberalism, and the effect abroad was to was uh, uh, was very destructive of any move towards an emphasis on democracy. The emphasis was on you know p- balance of payments. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, control of um, uh, c- control, uh, making sure that countries didn't go uh, into debt. Uh, there were much tighter controls, and and effectively, the U.S. lost allies. What now we think of our friends as the people who, who rally around us at points of military crisis uh, or, or or threats. But um, what happened to to the notions of allies outside of outside of the framework of, of military interventions. Um, the, the big, I would say the biggest example of the problem would be in our own, uh, in, in our own hemisphere of, of, uh, of, of Latin America and South America that um, we have at the moment, you know, a, um, you know, a really promising developments south of the border, yes. places of Chile, Peru, Colombia, uh, not to mention all, coming down the line, I think Brazil. Uh, but uh, what what have we heard from Biden or the Democrats about this opportunity? These and we have new Democratic elected uh, presidents with close ties to the marginalized peoples of those countries for the first time in years. And you know, we we hear about the campaign in Ukraine, but what about the campaign in South America? There's nothing. There's no alliance. Uh, you know, we have no foreign policy outside of military uh, intervention. Mm. What an incredible shame to be not using that uh, that energy. And I look at uh, uh, the, the president number forty five, who shall remain nameless, talked about all of Africa as a uh, not particularly attractive place, a word I don't want to use on the radio. I suppose he did, so I could. But <laughs> when you when you ignore 
the developmental possibilities, the possibilities when, you know, after World War II, when I grew up, we knew, we kids in the 50s knew that the rest of the world, the, the, the people struggling for, for economic justice uh, and for freedom and to be able to participate in their own self-governance, uh, they looked to the United States uh, to be on their side. But instead, we've kind of just it, given the power, as you say, to the, to the IMF and the World Bank and places like that. And it's, as you say, cost us allies. And I think about places like, like Greece, where there's a lot of, of poverty. I have never been there. I'd like to go someday. But the IMF and the World Bank, uh, a lot of people see them as uh, subsidiaries of, of Germany, and they've been occupied by Germany once before. And if we, you know, we could say, yes, we support you. We want you to have some uh, economic justice. But instead, we don't do that. We just, you're right, the focus is entirely on Ukraine now. And of course, people get bored pretty quickly. So that may pass as well. Mm -hmm. Well, we, we uh, I, I don't begrudge the commitment to defend um, Ukraine, oh, which no, itself no, had taken not. steps towards internally towards democracy. It was clearly a frail democracy, uh, uh, troubled by corruption and other uh, problems. But nevertheless, it was determined okay. to take a self uh, a self-governing path, and I think all the—it's to the tribute of, of of the Western world that it oh, steps yes. in to try to, to 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 support it. But it's in the name of democracy against totalitarianism and and autocracy. But what about the larger meaning of those terms? We aside from the military um, sort of stopping somebody from just taking over somebody else's country right. and territory. Right. Um, what about the, the internal meaning and the health of democracy there and, and in other places? It just seems like we, we turned the other way. I mean, even in, in Latin America oh, yeah. um, last week, the, the, the leading, the editor of, of Guatemala's leading newspaper was detained. I mean, that's a country that has always been um, mm -hmm. on the, you know, in military and out of military yeah. and, and drug lords running the country. And yet, I mean, we, though that's a country and, and a region where we have a lot of strings to pull. Uh, but, and now there are, like, as I suggested, I think a number of um, positive uh, yes. po possibilities, but uh, why not uh, think about the positive side of democracy and the, why not pull together uh, the democracies for a an econ a common economic uh, initiative uh, or a common political initiative, or for that matter, forget the government, uh, uh, which is seems to be constrained on so many fronts. Um, I, I don't see that any reason that um, why we should in, in the you know we we have remarkable civil uh, society action organizing as in the state of Kansas, you know, mm -hmm. just uh, a few days ago with the abortion uh, a referendum. Um, but why not pull some of this energy internationally together and with an uh, alliance of, um, of, of trade unions and women's groups and environmental groups um, uh, around larger is issues of democracy building uh, internationally? So a, a new progressive internationalism. Um, uh, that's that's where my thinking has been in in write, you know in writing this recent book. 
New progressive internationalism. Boy, that does sound good. And it is amazing the opportunities we have blown and continue to blow. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And it's a group effort, people. Our guest today is author and historian Leon Fink, who's got a new book out, Undoing the Liberal World Order. And it wasn't that long ago in the 1980s, for example, when Ronald Reagan uh, was very supportive of very repressive governments in places like Guatemala and El Salvador and uh, tried to overthrow the government of, of Nicaragua, which had become uh, democratic at the time after a horrible dictatorship of Somoza. These are opportunities that it's surprising that we don't connect with it. Had, I, my favorite political button is we need FDR again. <laughs> we do. And Couldn't agree more. He would understand this stuff. And talk about a little bit of history. There's not a lot of awareness of JFK's non-military post-Bay of Pigs New Direction possibilities for foreign policy. He got his uh, butt handed to him at the Bay of Pigs. That military approach did not work, and it was not good for him politically, shall we say. But people don't know. I fairly recently discovered his John Kennedy's historic commencement speech of June 10th, 1963 in American University. I think he was trying out this speech for, for the upcoming election. And he laid it out in some detail about his idea of, of peace and developing democracies and non-military solutions. You mentioned Kennedy's respecting and working with India's Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru. What were those community development projects that Nehru yeah. was well, involved. Go ahead. I, I would say in general, Bert, that um, Kennedy, uh, in that period of uh, Kennedy years were a kind of fulcrum of uh, opportunities. Uh, again, a lot of oppor liberal opportunities, uh, but uh, pathways taken and not taken. Yes. And I think Kennedy himself was pulled in two directions yeah. um, by different advisors or maybe what, depending on which side of the bed he woke up on today. But, but, you know, a lot of well, the big Kennedy, you know, question uh, ever since his uh, death has been whether he, um, what would he have done in Vietnam right. if he'd had continuing responsibility. And the fact is that he did, uh, I mean, the biggest argument I would say against um, Kennedy as a potentially uh, a more progressive approach in Vietnam is the, is the sad fact that the people who prosecuted the war were mostly the people he'd brought in yeah. to deal with it. So the, the Bundys and McNamara mm. and so on, they, they were, they were Kennedy appointees. So to, to imagine that yeah, he, true. he would have turned against them maybe yeah. on the advice of, um, you know, they, there were a few, uh, there were a few naysayers, but, but not enough, not early enough. But, but the point is he was nevertheless, um, even in making that a, a a brutal decision about um, consequential decision about Vietnam, he was pulled in other directions because he had he had been he he had been alarmed at the um, what seemed to him an overly um, uh, uh, unilateral approach of the generals and military thinkers in the Bay of Pigs. I mean, he kind of realized that he'd been snookered yeah. on the Bay of Pigs and felt that 
you know, as he as he approached, as he tried to settle the missile crisis of mm-hmm. 1962, that he that the, he tried to turn to a more negotiable approach to the issues of world li- of life and death uh, 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 and the standoff with with the Soviets. Yeah. But then in the issues with the third world, he was really pulled in again in different directions. There was the there was the counterinsurgency types um, who ultimately prevailed in, in Vietnam. But there was also the development types, um, people like Orville Freeman in Africa and um, and uh, uh, um, Chester Bowles, ambassador to India, and ultimately uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, mm. uh, who was a close advisor. Those latter three, those types were pushing him towards an engagement with the peoples of the of the of the third world. I mean, ra- rather than just a top down um American security uber alles approach mm-hmm. to everything. So um, the year he, he made a big thing of the year the, uh, of, of development in Africa, uh, reaching out to the new leaders in Kenya, Nigeria, Ghana. Um, uh, and um, they they responded in kind. I think he, he there, there's a, re- a resonance um, with mm. um, with Kennedy. And I, I think. Um, I think something that you wrote suggested that, you know, you in, in Peace Corps villages, you'd see pictures of Kennedy on the yes. walls of, of, of people. So so he, he was pulled in different ways. And this theme of that you mentioned in of uh, develop community development was a, a big idea in in India. It was really the beginnings of, of the war on poverty in the U.S. And, and, and effectively, the war on poverty in the U.S. under LBJ was really hatched uh, in American uh, abroad in uh, American foreign policy in places like India. Um, uh, some of the ideas had actually been uh, had gathered force within the the late New Deal and things like the Tennessee Valley Authority, where um, local farmers were or organized. You know their uh, their own um, village development, and combined mm-hmm. with new technology like hydroelectric power. But in India, that combination of uh, technology with uh, the creation of dams um, was combined with the notion of 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 small d democracy and, and village democracy, which uh, appealed to Nehru. It appealed. It was more of like in the more along the lines what Gandhi had, had preached of, of a more simple economy, but closer to the people. And um, uh, Chester Bowles uh, and the Ford Foundation poured millions of dollars, including American uh, development money, into these this community development project in India. Mm. It wasn't um, a resounding success, uh, and it was hamstrung both by um, – in in, in in Indian um, bureaucracy, uh-huh. um, uh, which was quite elaborate, uh, uh, the uh, was the phrase that was used the the Raj. Um, oh, yes. uh, I can't remember, but there's a. In any case, um, uh, they had all the worst features of British bureaucracy in <laughs> India, with with you know with with their own village. Uh, also, village hierarchies thrown in. Oh my so it, it didn't. Um, the, they it, it probably didn't have enough time to show great economic responses. But in any case, it was cut short um, uh, 
by uh, the need for output for for scale uh, uh, and and so the experts turn to the so-called green revolution rather than to village democracy or community development and the community development idea though had enough legs that people who'd worked with bowls in India like um, Harris Wofford mm-hmm. uh, helped to create the Peace Corps, who helped also create the Peace Corps and then the war on poverty back in the U.S. a few years later. So this idea, the larger issue of development, what did liberals, what did progressives mean by development right. um, re- re- was a key question, I think, for, for, for at least for decades. Um, uh, and it never received a full trial or a, satis- or a satisfactory answer. And then I'm afraid that basically now for decades since, uh, especially in foreign policy, um, we've forgotten about it altogether. And you rarely you rarely hear any vision for development uh, uh, abroad other than, um, you know, outside of issues of military security or, you know, how do we stop the Taliban from taking over? But there's no social economic counterpart that w- that we that we help to sustain that that's my concern that is a, a a real concern and it people like to feel like they have some say over their future and it sounds like the market forces are strong have been strong and the market is of course dominated by international you know the um, international monetary fund world bank and the big corporations who have a lot of money to be made, whereas the locals in the community, they don't have a lot of money. But in terms of actual stability, peace and prosperity and stability, there are other policies. And people certainly had hope. And I, I mentioned that when I was in Peru in 1977, I, I was amazed when I went into a, a very low-income home in a small village, there was that velvet painting of JFK. And that, that told us a lot that people still looked to the United States and the uh, Alliance for Progress was something that uh, I, I often... Yeah, go ahead. It, I, was, I do think the Alliance for Progress, uh, you know, it it was the better... It, it was blessed with uh, in principle with the better angels of Kennedy's right. vision. Um, <laughs> however, he, unfortunately, he had just helped to, to topple Castro and, or, and you know, and, and, and the, the plots against Castro were being uh, uh, publicized. And so he was rather than gaining a, ch- a chance to gain um, popular legitimacy, mm-hmm. you know, b- by an American backed vision of peaceful social transformation, rather the U S was mm-hmm. associated with, uh, you know, counter you know, with, uh, Militarizing uh, the the struggle with, with communism and, uh, and and seeing only a repressive, uh, a, you know, putting repressive uh, police and military approaches above anything else. Uh, so we, rather than winning friends, the U.S. lost friends and l- lost the chance again to to start a more de- New Deal like uh, foreign policy. What a shame could have done it the uh, the uh, the hope was there 
among people in these uh, developing countries. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about our foreign policy and how, you know, when people in third world nations think about the U.S., what they often think of is uh, militarism. And and our guest today is Leon Fink, uh, author, uh, historian, uh, who's got a new book out, Undoing the Liberal World Order. And I, I do find it fascinating. It's almost like, you know, we have to have some something to spend, you know, a few hundred billion dollars on. Uh, the, the military has to. There's all these uh, weapons contractors that are, you know, I mean, you talk about socialism. <laughs> We're mm-hmm. bailing them out all the time. So after World War II, we replaced fascist enemies with the frightening specter of global communism. And that that steered America's foreign policy uh, for many years. And instead of seeing efforts in, in countries like Central and South America as wanting to chart their own course, uh, we'd see it, I mean, and, and Reagan would paint it as communism. You know, land reform is communism. So how... How well has that, what were the goals? <laughs> I think that, yes, I think you're right. And I think uh, that the struggle, the anti-communist forces themselves uh, included a large umbrella of people. And, and at the, at, there was a left uh, edge to the anti-communist uh, uh, foreign policy. That is uh, those who uh, uh, were, uh, attempted to respond to the threat of communism with a more social democratic yes. alternative uh, uh-huh. of their own mm-hmm. um, and, and including land reform in places like um, Japan, um, ultimately in South Korea, uh, that that were pretty, pretty significant and pretty successful. Um, I think in other places, uh, especially in Latin America, the uh, putting anti-communism ahead of any other mm. uh, concern, you know, just quashed the chance for alternatives. So that uh, I guess the, the signal example was of Guatemala, where um, a uh, really a springtime of democratic development had emerged um, under the sky Ravelo in the late 40s and, and continued really? um, until the CIA collaborated with the State Department in um, in, in in basically a military right. uh, coup against the government in 1954, and that set a, a terrible example that continued into the Dominican Republic. And uh, 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 th- there was a chance, even with Castro, there were uh, attempts to sure. um, right. to to inveigle to to, uh, to to recruit Castro for a more uh, uh, international progressive uh, framework that outside the Cold War, but um, they they were un- utterly unconvincing attempts from his point of view, and he and he chose to, to you know to you know a really staunch uh, commitment to to the Soviet aid and system, and I think to the, to the regret of 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 a lot of the most democratic forces even that had supported him uh, initially. Yeah. So I don't, I think that the anti-communist frame um, really did deflect other alternatives and was uh, often a, a just legitimized a total reaction, reactionary foreign policy. Uh, but in, 
uh, although there were some exceptions. But I think the same, um, it certainly was an excuse for the military to intervene, not only for, not only with NATO, but but, but for, for all these uh, other alliances. Um, uh, the opposition to communism legitimated uh, all too often just in, and anything but the communist right. approach. Um, and, but, and I think the same tendency then um, developed with terrorism, that yes. um, terrorism, like communism, became a great legitimator of American military power or, and, ty- and technology uh, as, a, as a, you know, rather than social or political policy or social economic policy, we just relied on either the mili- military or technological innovation to deal with our enemies. And most recently in this, uh, you know, the takedown of Zawari, uh, you know, uh, you know, in um, Afghanistan. Uh, and I, I think uh, the, the problem is that um, uh, the fo- a foreign policy that relies just on military strength yes. and on uh, technological uh, superiority um, ha- of- often simply fails to deal with the underlying exactly. problems that are leading to mass, not just poverty, but mass disaffection from s- the standing governmental authorities. So I think that um, and-, and we can see that in the rise of um of these uh, right-wing uh, populist regimes, and I would say even neo-fascist yes. uh, regimes, uh, in so many places now that that were based on dem- that had democratic precedents. I mean, Hungary, yes. um, Turkey. It's not that they sprang autocracy full tilt from, from nothing. These were often de- already at least incipient, if not strong, democratic regimes. Um, same in Brazil, of course, with Bolsonaro, and the same, frankly, in the U.S. with Trump. Uh, so I think in all of these cases, uh, the failure of um, policymakers to deal with the underlying social, uh, uh, really suffer, suffering and, and anger of people, and to have any to see any political solution within their, you know, within. With yeah. you know, with as a, as an option, has has led to some pretty monstrous um, results. That's for uh, sure. and it, and, it, and it's outside of the official. You know, it's it's not communism, it's not terrorism, uh, but it, it but but we haven't dealt with what are the sources of of, of this new, um, you know, neo fascism. Yeah, and. If people are upset and suffering and angry, and at least somebody on the right pretends at least to talk to them and say, I hear you, well, we know it works. It often works. But if we just, we, the United States, just sends in, you know, a military uh, dictator, basically, um, that's not going to work. It's not going to win the hearts and minds of the people. And we could have learned that. Uh, in Vietnam, but we chose not to. And it's certainly fashionable these days to dismiss Jimmy Carter's invocation of human rights as a measure for what was acceptable for American foreign policy. Where does that fit into what you see as a progressive policy? Jimmy Carter's Carter's another uh, road uh, that 
that beckoned with, I think, some real positive uh, signals, but ultimately it was uh, a road not taken or a road that was was turned away from or uh, didn't fully develop. And I, because Jimmy Carter was the first um, Democratic post-Watergate president, um, and he was uh, uh, trying to, um, he, he was dealing both with um, uh, the disillusionment with the Republicans from Watergate, but also the hanging disillusionment with the foreign policy establishment that had brought us Vietnam and the disaster of Vietnam. And so Carter did turn to um, a notion of, a, 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 he wanted a, a, a smaller U.S. footprint on the rest of the world, um, but a footprint that spoke in terms of values and not in terms of just bombs. Uh, 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 and he harnessed his own, I mean, his his own deepest reservoirs of commitment were really to the civil rights movement. I mean, his idealism sprang from his connection to the civil rights movement. He didn't have extensive foreign policy experience himself, um, but with by bringing in um, Andy Young and then um, uh, let's see who is the Secretary of State uh, mm. was it George Ball was that right oh, um, I can't remember I'm I'm blanking for the moment but uh, he uh, he tried to turn away from that Vietnam debacle um, towards a, a a foreign policy of rights um, um, that worked. To a degree, but the problem is American American notion of rights don't translate easily to the rest of the world, mm. and uh, it, it it needed to be connected to you know other sources of like economic so yes. self sufficiency and yes. some notions of social welfare, not just rights. The rights framework worked best where it was closest to the American core about the civil, about civil rights, you know, so that there was probably no better or more triumphant and more progressive campaign in American foreign policy, I would say, than the, the than the broad support to to dismantle apartheid in South Africa with, with the sanctions, a strong sanctions bill in Congress mm. That, that overcame Ronald Reagan's own veto and mm. it, with strong grassroots support in this country. It included mass organization on campuses with shanty towns. And, but it even drew on uh, into Republican Party support with people like um, Richard Lugar, otherwise a conservative, uh, but an internationalist in foreign policy, you know, from from Indiana, who 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 along who, who alongside some of the most progressive uh, African American uh, Congress people uh, 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 like Ron Dellums from California pushed this strong sanctions bill against South Africa based on the, these theories of rights that um, yes. human rights that that Carter had had, had pioneered in his foreign policy. Um, the other area where Carter tried to use rights. Um, uh, with mixed results was of course the middle east where he called right. his rights no his rights uh vision led him to push for the first time uh for a two-state solution in israel palestine and that was the idea that uh israel was a country that, to which 
to whose defense and security the U.S. was certainly committed, but we are also committed to the rights of minorities, whether in the U.S. or in other places. And, and in Israel, that meant that the Palestinians needed to have some basis of self-determination as well. And so um, he, you know, he pulled together the first Camp David um, mm-hmm. uh, summit. And, um, I, I, you know, I give him great credit, but it, it was it proved to be a thicket. You know, a, a hornet's nest in a thicket, <laughs> double, sure. double whammy. And um, he, to this day, of course, that's not. Uh, there's, despite efforts through, really th- from through Clinton and then through and through Obama, um, uh, including uh, increasing Israeli intransigence. I would say to, yeah. t- towards the, towards the very concept, um, it's never, it's never, it's never come about. But uh, Carter did was inspired at least to push the the the, the project and the other thing about rights is that it's not like americans don't continue to talk about rights they do especially yes. american liberals and progressives and yes. so there are idealistic americans you know from i say especially from the, in the democratic party who've entered government um to try to do things to, to improve the world and, and to reduce suffering. Yes. Um, and they've often, it's often done so under the theme of rights. And I, I think Obama had those intentions. His um, uh, person who I think of uh, most closely identified with that theme of rights abroad is Samantha Power, mm. who, who to this day is, you know, as a, as a Biden, uh, uh, she she plays a role in the in the Biden sure. foreign policy team, um, but the problem is, um, and the and the rights theme um, can occasionally make um, have an impact, a positive impact. You know, for example, in the Balkan War, uh, uh, the pushback against the biggest brutalities of of, of Milosevic uh, mm-hmm. uh, 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 in, in 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 the um, the blow up of the Balkans or the uh, in stopping, you know, genocide in, in places where so the U.S. has sent in, um, you know, teams to try to stop the worst uh, atrocities. Uh, uh, Libya is mm-hmm. another example. But but the rights framework is just inadequate to go beyond sure. the amelioration of the worst. It It, 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 it never seems to lead to a positive or or a pathway for the future it's 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 inadequate and insufficient well, i I'm, I'm sure and you're right when people are are suffering uh and they're hungry that's what matters the most that's their highest priority uh and i i do believe you know americans in general we don't really know about you know where our stuff comes from we want cheap stuff no. quick you know and yeah. and a lot of the resources that that our high tech depends on has to be dug from the ground in in poorer countries and the people in those countries the conditions that they live in they're not great um, but but we we don't pay attention to that. I think there are a lot of people a lot of people who if they knew would care about it we would like to see more uh People able to to govern themselves and to not live in you know uh, situations where they don't have any 
economic say over their own future, that they, they get a living wage, for example, and the environment is, is somewhat protected. But people don't see that all that much. It's, it's like it's something we don't want to look at. But I think people enough people do care about that so that if it was raised, and you're right, in, in voting times, Nobody even thinks about foreign policy. It just no, right. never comes up. It's mm-hmm. it's like even less than the Supreme Court. Nobody thinks about it. But it's it's. I, it, I think Bert, there are two areas that um, uh, would warrant uh, for further thinking in, in progressive circles and all, hopefully then in, in in the political sphere. And, and one, do tell. Um, yeah. One well, one is 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 in the arena of trade, and the others in the arena of migration and migrants. Oh, yes. Both are both, uh, you know, whether we deal with them or not, are very much in focus. China is a threat to this uh, uh, or, or that. Uh, how do we uh, l- limit? Um, h- how do we preserve? You know, America's whether it's um, computer chips or right. semiconductors. Um, and, and, uh, w- so we can throw up protectionist individual protectionist sure. barriers but yes. we we have no overall vision and that a, a policy you know would need to be more internationalist um we, we went along for years with mm. the more free trade approach which did serve us well initially but then it was proved to be a kind of boomerang as i argue in my book but um it uh but in the aftermath of that boomerang uh where uh once we'd made products and got the advantage of shipping them abroad, now we were we're always on the receiving end, and uh, mm. we. But uh, that would require, I think, a, a more of a a collective approach with maybe a new Bretton Woods uh, agreement mm. for just establishing the the basis of a generally liberal marketplace. That is where people were encouraged to trade import and export to each other, but also with some protections for regional economies that were like, that would likely break under the strain uh, as the Midwest did, you know, uh, under, you know, under the basically an avalanche of cheap manufactured imports. There needs, there needs to be some safety valves built into the system. Um, That's one area uh, that I think requires some thinking, you know, and it's not a matter, you can't solve that militarily. You can't solve it by, you know, a new, a technology, you know, a drone is not going to do it. Uh, but in the other area, uh, equally problematic uh, at the moment, I think is migration. People are on the move because of climate change, because of, because of mass, because of poverty, uh, because of violence. And, uh, you know, again, this is another case where dealing with things totally incrementally is just is is hopeless. You know, Biden tried to reverse the cruelty of Trump's border policy, but he really doesn't have anything to replace it. With. Right. Know, he, he, so and and I think that if we looked at the actual causes, and that's what we're talking about here, the actual underlying reasons people flee. Uh, Guatemala and El Salvador and places like that is because of poverty and violence. There are things we could do there. If we could go in there and address that, uh, that would be far more effective, mm-hmm. I'm sure. So again, I would I'd come back to the idea of an, uh, a summit. You know, Biden had a good term, a summit right. of democracies, but let's put some teeth, let's put some substance yeah. into that concept. 
uh, and because these uh, problems like these need to be resolved uh, by you know by by a give and take of sure. negotiation and collect. But if we can have an alliance, you know, to uh, to, to help Ukraine, uh, you know, bringing different governments and regimes together, why can't we do that in some of these other needed areas of human welfare? Yeah, you say that the campaign to save Ukrainian self government creates an opening for a broader global democratic counteroffensive. I wonder if you could say more about that. that kind of- I, I do. Well, I, I think, again, it comes back to what are we fighting for uh, yeah. in Ukraine? I think that on the one hand, um, at the most n- narrow and limited sense, you know, we're fighting uh, like an old, uh, like almost like an old Cold War instinct against yes. Soviet incursion, you know, yes. across borders. And, and there, Putin, Putin pro- provides a great, yeah. you know, a good pretext for that kind of thinking. I mean, oh, he, yeah. He, uh, and but but we're also fighting to to preserve and extend democracy in Ukraine and elsewhere. And but to do that requires us to maintain a kind of a more of an alliance uh, approach uh, to to the larger problem at hand. And uh, so that beyond helping yes. with you know the latest round of of, of of missiles or mobile missiles um surely we have other resources we can bring to bear on these problems that, that's my main argument boy I would sure hope so and again the, one of the biggest obstacles is the 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 powers that make these decisions there's a lot of money to be made by weapons contractors and American uh, financial interests current policies, serve them exceptionally well. We spend hundreds of billions of dollars now on so-called defense, which I don't think is working particularly well. It's not making us safer. What you and I envision is a better foreign policy, but that would deny the military contractors that lifeline of dollars. Given that reality, can a military option, military uh, being the, the, the first resort, ever give way to a broader set of objectives how how possible well i i think um i I think it is possible uh and i think uh in some ways the military option is often just proves to be too um too easy i mean it's it's there it's there on the shelf um we 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 we, we've lost the muscle memory for for anything other than Mm. than military and security responses and i think we need to uh to to to, re, to redevelop it. I mean, we need a uh, uh, a Pilates course for uh, foreign policy. <laughs> and I I will say that in 1984, I was honored to travel with George McGovern. He he's not well regarded in history, but I like him yeah. quite a bit. He was seeking the party nomination to run against Reagan back then. I I was traveling in Iowa with him, and I sent out clips of his speeches throughout the state. One of the things he said, which sticks with me and I think is still applicable, he said, we can do more to dry up the swamplands of despair, which breeds communism with their agricultural, educational, technical, medical help than with all the military hardware in our vast arsenal. So if you replace the word communism with terrorism, I think it still applies. You're here, and I think his McGovern's own Food for Peace yes, program was, was one of the signal was one of those important uh initiatives of an era before uh everything was yeah. swallowed by, by by purely military thinking oh my goodness this purely military thinking 
you would think here we'd be in the 21st century that maybe, maybe we would be uh, a little bit freer and that there are other options, as I said in the beginning, other than just uh, thrusting lead into the flesh of other people and defending unpopular governments that we continue to do. Uh, but, uh, well, there are options and we the people are not powerless. The powers that be want us to think we're powerless, but we are not. Leon Fink has a new book out. He's been our guest today. I'm very pleased. His new book is Undoing the Liberal World Order. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Bert. Keep up the fight. All right. You too. If you like today's show, subscribe at the website, Keeping Democracy Alive, Stitcher, or Spotify, or iTunes. Don't miss a single one.